You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, I'm James O'Brien. Thank you for downloading episode 25 of Unfiltered. It features the author Irvin Welsh, most famous, I, I don't think anyone would argue with me for saying, for train spotting. His new book, Dead Men's Trousers, returns to those characters, but there's a hell of a lot that has gone on in between those two books. And um, from what I've read of Irvin's life before train spotting came out, there's quite a lot of ground to cover there as well. Uh, so let's get started. I didn't know you lived in Miami. We should start with that. You just told me you got in from yeah. Miami. I thought you'd been on holiday. Yeah, Is that why you've got your like hat on? Be, I feel like I've permanently been on holiday there, like, you know, and uh, that's soon dispelled when I get back home, like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you look very well on it. Thank um, you. Thank let's, you. Let's begin at the beginning. You were born in Leith, which at the time, we're talking about 19, late 50s, 58? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was a throbbing dock still in yeah, 58. Yeah, no, it was quite a, a kind of vibrant port, and um, it was like, uh, very, it was like, I mean, I remember like a kid kind of sort of uh, in the 60s. It was like very, um, it was quite seedy and kind of sort of run down. But it was, uh, I mean, all these bars that are now Michelin star restaurants were kind of sort of dockside pubs full of sort of Dutch sailors and kind of um, one bar even had a, a kind of lion inside in a cage. Basically. Seriously? Yeah. Just yeah. come over on one of the boats? Yeah, it so. came over on one of the boats and nobody could be bothered kind of <laughs> getting rid of it. And uh, the drunks used to put their hands in there and kind of occasionally get mauled, you know, something we wake up up in the morning with no fingers like you know but um yeah it was just you know it was one of these old school kind of you know you know i used to sit used to go down there and um as kids and my mom you know say why is that painted lady in fishnet stockings standing under a street lamp and all that you know it was, it was that kind of place back then but um and then it just like you know it, it kind of deindustrialized kind of fell on hard times like the the shipyards rob caledon yes. um stopped uh, building ships in the Thatcher era, and that was like 600 solid years of shipbuilding in Leith. Just gone, gone in an instant. Yeah. You did, your dad worked on the docks. He worked on the docks for a while. Um, the docks at one time had like, um, I think it had like you know, about kind of seven, eight, seven, eight thousand dock workers there. Um, and uh, it's kind of, you know, now it's just a skeleton dock. It's just yes. containers coming. It's like um, just all kind of mechanised. Uh, and um, the other one was, uh, you know, the, the there was the, the, the Rob Calden shipyards, um, but there's also all the New Haven industrial stuff, like the kind of the, the Ryan Clovis flour mills and all that. So it was quite a, a vibrant um, place at that time. Did, did your childhood was, I mean, a little chaotic. I think you first got arrested at eight, but only for playing football. You said <laughs> yeah, in a, yeah. In a no ball games area, it's not. It's not. Not really up there with sort of a young Al Capone or anything like that, is it? But but it but it was happy, was it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was. You know, the thing was that um, people when I was a, when I was a kid, um, people moved from the tenements in Leith and they moved right along the estuary, basically when they had all the, the what they called the slum clearance era, and uh, people would move to Granton, they would move to um, Pilton. We moved to the prefabs in Pilton, which was kind of like prefabricated kind of uh, low-rise housing. 
Um, and then we moved on to the Maisonettes and Muir House, which were kind of built on a kind of Algerian design. Uh, not really suitable for the Scottish weather. But, <laughs> what do you uh, mean an Algerian? Yeah, they were designed by uh, they were designed in Algeria first uh, for for Algeria uh, climatic conditions. <laughs> Seriously, like, uh, yeah, yeah. And obviously they just fell apart. When you had <laughs> Dissolved. This, yeah, basically, yeah. When you had the Scottish rainwater, that's uh, and it's like you know it's funny, Leith. Um, they still make the same architectural mistakes then. You know, they built this massive. Um, recently, only about kind of twenty years ago, they built a massive. Um, like uh, it was supposed to be for the yuppies' fascination with water. You know, so build yes. build down there. Um, most of them, most of them weren't that near water, and um, they were built on that kind of very low sort of architectural values. And uh, they're not, they're only there for just sling them up. Yeah, sling up for about. Um, I think they were supposed to be up for 50 years, and then they realised they're only going to last 30. Nobody's going to take out a mortgage on that. So they basically went to the housing associations, right. and the housing associations rehoused a lot of the council tenants there. So, uh, And there's no amenities down there. So they've built a kind of private sector ghetto, basically. Again, yeah. there's a history of sort of repeating yeah. itself. What made you tick as a child, Irvine? What would I mean, what do you remember as being... Because, I mean, your, your, your life as you got older and the stuff that you've written about... Um, it, 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 it speaks of quite dark places, but I... Yeah, I mean, as a kid, it wasn't really enough. Uh, what I really liked most of all, I think, was, um, I, you know, like a lot of kids, I liked uh, football, I liked sport. Um, but I also liked art as well. I also liked the... Um, I also like kind of uh, writing and painting and all that, you know. I, you, and you know, weren't embarrassed by that, either no, within well, yourself well, well, or yeah, people outside yeah, trying to yeah, embarrass you. Yeah, very much. I think that's the kind of thing that um, I noticed I had a different set of friends for both, you know, oh, okay. and I, I hated that kind of... Um, I, and I still hate that kind of false dichotomy between sport and art. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's kind of integrated and balanced and normal to, to want to do both these things. Mm. And I hated the way that, um, you know, this happens in our, you know, our, the, the world we live in with, the, you know, the, this whole division of labour mentality that you're parceled off into one thing or, or yes. another. Um, I always found that unsatisfactory because I loved, you know, I, I loved writing and painting. I loved playing football, boxing, tennis, uh, and um, I was never good at either of these, any of these things. But I kind of enjoyed doing them, and uh, I would kind of immerse myself in them. I, I uh, would have, I just as an outsider looking in, I, I would have thought that the Scottish cultural history was a little bit more welcoming of what you've just described. I see it's quite an English thing to say you've got to know yeah, your place I mean, and stay in it, stay yeah, in your lane, they say these to, days. To, to an extent, I think, but um, it's like, you know, the the activities are yes. kind of organised. I mean, I remember playing football and um, enjoyed playing football for the, the team that I played with. And then I would think, well, I'm, I'm getting a bit fed up with this, so I'm going to stay in my bedroom and write poems or do paintings for a bit, you know. And I would do this for a couple of weeks, and I said, right, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing football again. So I'd come back and say, oh, you're not on the team anymore, we're giving your place away. I, I, was, I was absolutely heartbroken when this happened. Like, How can you do this to me? How could you possibly do this? But, you know, I, I think there was always this um, this tendency and this urge to want to kind of fly solo as well, okay. which lends, lends itself very much to that kind of writer's Sort yes. of, um, kind of view in life, you know that kind of that artsy view in life. But against that, I've always um, I've always liked kind of working with other people, and you know, like working and film and TV now is, is a great thing for me because it stops me from spending all this time in a room with people that don't exist, which is not a good thing to do. No, obviously. I know, I guess not. But 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 equally, you, you haven't had to curtail any of the sort of art, the creative. Yeah, process. Yeah, you, you, you know, you think to yourself, well, I've done this a while. I don't want. 
everybody in the room, you know, haven't put their red pen through what I've, I've, I've done. Do you, do know, you enjoy so. company? Do you like being with people? Yeah, I do. do. I mean, I'm, I'm quite, a, you know, I'm quite. So you're negative. an extrovert. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's weird because um, it's a schizoid thing, and it comes out. And uh, if you're a writer, it's a very solitary pursuit. Basically, yes. you spend so much of your time on your own. Um, and if you're an author, you're out promoting the, the stuff that you've done, you know, and you've, you've got to be mm. quite outgoing and extrovert and enjoy spending time with people and enjoy meeting people at readings and signings and chatting yeah. to them and all that. Uh, enjoy all the kind of parties and the ligging that kind of goes along with it. Uh, so I think you have to keep, you have to be comfortable in these two mindsets, which a lot of people aren't comfortable in. You know, comfortable the, the, in they're one know. or the other. Yeah, they're either the solitary writer right. Again, in a it's garret. This, or... It's this like, dichotomy thing that I've never been happy with. You know, I think so there's you, two yous, is there, in a way? There's the one playing football. At least two. At least least, two. Well, yeah, right, certainly, doors, <laughs> certainly doors. But there's the one playing football who likes hanging out with people, and then there's the one either writing your books or back in the day doing your paintings and writing your poems who likes to feel the... The, the, the heft of the door, the bedroom door shutting behind him. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Sort, yeah. Of, sort of shutting the world out and then welcoming yeah. it on your terms. Yep. School didn't seem to play a massive part in your childhood. School was, t- you know, I mean, I loved, you know, it's funny because I hated school when I was there. But um, Why? Well, I kind of, I, I hated the kind of structure and discipline of it, the idea you had to go to th- do things. From the very beginning. Yeah, it was just not you went, for you. you're just sitting down um, in one place, listening to somebody talk in front of you. Just didn't have any appeal at all. You know, I wanted to get up and go and leave and, you know, the room. And, and um, But um, what I kind of... Uh, you know, when you get out of school, you think, "God, that was actually a piece of cake. That was fun." You know, this <laughs> is, you the problems the start now. You know, this is this is where it all starts to get really crap. You know? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I kind of thought the school was bad until I left it. You, you know, didn't have because most people, even if they hated school, they had like one inspiration. Or in your case, I'd have thought an English teacher. Yeah, it was an English teacher and an art teacher. It was like uh, Mrs. Tate and Miss Cameron, who were brilliant teachers. Kind of, um, they were very encouraging and. Uh, and it was like, I just wish I could do that all the time. So, I, I, you know, and the great thing about Mrs. Tate as a teacher, she used to say to me, like, you know, your grammar's not that great, your spelling's not that great. Don't worry about all that. Just be creative. Just write your She's stories. She's ahead of her time. Yeah. Though, really. Yeah. And um, the, the art teacher, Mrs. Cameron, Miss Cameron would just let me kind of um, do what I wanted. And she, she kind of, um, she wasn't one of these, you know, Teachers, that if um, if you drew a black sun, she wouldn't be sending you to a psychotherapist for all that referring. <laughs> you know, I just say, black sun, interesting. What's going on here? And I would say something else. Like, oh, this, this is a different alternate planet, basically. You know, we're all kind of um, everything's re- the reverse of what it is here. What did the art give you then? Not not just at school, but I mean, what were you getting out? I of I think that? it was great. I mean, it was great in terms of the the, the way. I think that the kind of writer that I became, yes. you know, just dive into the subconscious, don't think too much about it, just guess, throw anything down that bit of paper and then work out what it's about later on, you know, and impose some kind of structure on it later on, work out what the characterizations are going to be later on, work out what the plot lines and the storylines are going to be. I like that. So so sort of you immerse yourself and then start yeah, yeah, working um, out what's going on. Immerse yourself and, you know, don't, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who walks around with a moleskin and takes loads of notes everywhere he goes like you know I just tend to get out there and just you know chat to people and kind of have a laugh and kind of sort of get out and kind of um, do a bit of travel and meet people and then not really think about it too much and what kind of comes back um, 
comes out through the, the, the subconscious, basically. And, and does the muse arrive like a train? Do you, do you, do you, do you have... Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it's music that generates it. You know, I can sit down and I can, um, I can start playing some stuff and I've got my, I've got my, my decks and my, my, my CGXs kind of in my, in my room and I start just mixing music and sort of, uh, you know, mixing different tracks and then I get a, a notional idea of a playlist for each character and that helps me get into the character. Really? You know, I, like, I like to get a character... It's very vivid, so you can actually feel their kind of breath on your ear in the pub almost next to you. You know, you think kind of yeah. something that's almost a bit, a bit overbearing. And I think you, you get that level of emotion from the character, from, from the music. Really and so, like, yeah. I mean, could it, 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 how does that work then in terms of what you like and what the character likes? Could you find yourself being moved by stuff that... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I always used to think that, you know, if you, if you, everybody thinks they've got a great taste in music yeah. and you think that... Um, if people have like kind of, um, you know, uh, like uh, if your parents are into music or you've got a kind of cool big brother or yeah, big sister yeah. or if you've got like kind of um, a cool pal or something like that and you kind of inherit that, uh, you're lucky if that happens. Um, most cases it's just a disease of association like anything else, I think. Because um, remember when I was doing Filth, um, I thought I'm going to have to give this guy music that I don't really like. But, yes, know? I was thinking. So I was that. getting these cheesy power ballads <laughs> and all this stuff, and I just immersed myself in them. And I found that eventually I was getting into them. You know, I was really enjoying them, and it was like, uh, and I thought, God, this is all my kind of pretensions about being sort of um, cool because I like a certain type of music. It's all gone. It's just purely a disease of association. That's a great yeah. phrase. Is that your own phrase? Mine. Yeah, yeah I think D- probably disease is. of association. Yeah. I would yeah. just like to double check because I'm going to nick it and pass it off as mine. I don't want someone yeah, turning yeah, around. You, 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 you Didn't Nietzsche say that? I said, I don't think you so. You can have it. You I don't think it. it was Nietzsche. Talon Boros. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, there you go. That'll be better. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, it's the first time we've met and we're, we're only a few minutes into it. But you are. It, it, I don't know why. I, I would have had an image of you as being quite a stubborn fella or someone who was quite. Not set in your ways, that would be wrong, because I've read most of your work, but someone who had very clear ideas about who he was. But what you've described so far is somebody who's not only incredibly open to outside influences, but someone who is actually changed by them as well. Yeah, I mean, you think you, you have... But the exciting thing in life is that... Um, is to allow transformation to take place. You know, I mean, I don't like the idea of just doing the same thing as no. I've constantly done. And I think it's like a lot of my generation were kind of, um, were basically Bowie's children. You know, he was a, he was a great kind of transformative oh, yeah. artist, yeah. and he kind of set the template for a lot of working class people who wanted to get into art, who wanted to get into music, and didn't really see anything as being set in any way. You know, that uh, that you can kind of. Um, you can kind of experiment, and not not so much the kind of, um, you know. I think you know you, you kind of uh, th- there's limitless things that we're into if only we'd look at them and try them, you know. And I and, think and we, you have to be prepared to to do these different things. I mean, right now I'm obsessed with Pilates. You know, I go to my, my I go to my Pilates class with um, this kind of basically a bunch of a bunch of girls and women and all that. You know that that, uh, and I'm the only guy in the class, and they kind of you know. But I love doing, you know, I've got obsessed with this. And it's like, I think you have to allow yourself to be obsessed with things that are often counterintuitive yes. to you. Do, do you do the really, machines? Yeah, I do the machines. Are you serious? Yes, yes, definitely. They're yeah. hardcore, yeah. aren't they? For people yeah, who don't are, know, I mean, it's like it's a Heath like, Robinson-type contraption that yeah, this fellow invented. And you're, just, you know, you're, you're just constantly kind of, um, you know, it's like, the, I find, because I'm, I'm all legs, basically. Right. I'm kind of, um, 
I'm a normal sized person with giraffe like legs, <laughs> and uh, I find that you know they, they they're very very difficult when you're stretching your legs yeah. right back and you're getting that kind of resistance and you're kind of you know you're you're pull, basically being pulled apart by the machines. Um, but it's been great for me. It's been great for kind of core strength and balance and stuff. I am. Um, it's interesting that you talk about Bowie and and, and providing inspiration to to working class people, showing them that change. I suppose is his most obvious word to use is 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 doable. To me, I think we might be living in an era where when people use the word, phrase working class, they're they're describing something quite different to what you just meant. They're describing almost a, a constituency that are expected not to. Um, I don't know. Listen to music made by men in makeup. To be really obvious about it, there's a there's a there's a strange thing happening with class in this country at the moment, and I, you just highlighted it. For yeah, me. I think there's you know it's, it's the changes in the economy and the changes in technology. I think that um, there's uh, and the, the biggest thing is the, all the things like kind of like working class culture, yeah. um, youth culture, that's all kind of gone now. It's all been subsumed into a general kind of media culture. So things Everything don't feels have a little an bit samey, doesn't it? Yeah, well, they don't have an underground. There's nothing they can... There's nothing they can exist in to percolate and and to, to you know to find their own sort of um, to find their own kind of rhymes and themes and mores and all that sort of stuff. So they're so the tent you know anything that becomes successful uh, or becomes recognised, it's right out there yeah. straight away. It doesn't yeah. have a chance to find its own sort of um, to breathe basically and to find its own sort of acolytes and its own champions. Which is why. Arguably, culture ends up being quite shallow because it hasn't had time to gestate. In that yeah, sort of no, it's, it's, it's just out there now. It's an instant kind of media is, culture it? thing. Like, yeah. um, let's go back. You left school at sixteen. Were you? Had it crossed your mind at this point that you could make a living doing the writing and the art? Was it? No, really. I mean, I tried the music, and I was, you know, I was terrible. But were you? Yeah, guitarist I, I tried it. Well, I did the usual thing that guitarists, terrible guitarists do. But you can't play guitar. You go into bass. You know. <laughs> um, and uh, it was fun. I was terrible on bass as well. And uh, I remember um, going into this, um, you know, the I was in this band. It was like a bedroom band. And one of my, my pals, who was a guitarist in the band, he'd, um, you know, we, you know, we, we, there was four of us who were kind of friends that were, you know, were doing this. And um, it was like, you know, I was a guy that kind of actually formed the band and got it together, basically. Uh, and, we, you know, we'd all, over the a couple of years, we'd managed to, you know, sort of have proper instruments and all that. We were jamming together all the time. And uh, I was in the record store where they have all the, you know, they used to have all the, the, the adverts in the window, you know, like kind of uh, drummer wanted and all that. And I saw this big advert, and I thought, like, bassist wanted. And I thought, oh, somebody else is looking for, looking for a bassist here. I recognised the phone number. It was my best mate's phone number. You know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I recognise that number. <laughs> the bastard, what the fuck? So I went around to the phone box and I phoned him. And he goes, I hear you're looking for a basis. And he goes, Aye, the guy we've got, he's my mate, but he's crap. Like, we're going to get rid of him. You know? <laughs> so they, they, they planned this coup, basically, against me, you know. So um, and it was like, it was, um, it was a weird thing, but, you know, when, when I thought about it on reflection, that I just wasn't progressing at the same rate as the other guys. And this was a common feature of every, anybody that I played with. I wasn't musically proficient enough to progress to the same level. Right. And not massively exciting or kind of high levels by any by any <laughs> just, just not levels but, you could yeah, reach. But, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I think did come out of um, trying to do music over the years was that um, 
I kind of, you know, I, I would write songs, and the songs were always ballads, which were okay. just stories, but, you know, they're just stories, basically, without music. So mm. I thought, well, the music's not working, but the stories might have something, so carry on with the stories. So uh, so I did, really, you know, so that's really... Who, who would you out. show stuff to when you were young? I wouldn't show stuff to anybody, really. really? I mean, I just, I mean, the old girlfriend who kind of... Uh, I mean, obviously, when I, was, when I was doing music in bands and stuff yeah. like that, they would come, there would be songs, and I was shown to people then, and, you know... Um, I mean, the first thing people would say was like, "Yeah, that's good, but the chord structure is crap." Like, you know, just let me put so some the words. Put, let me put a riff onto it. But the yeah. words are great, you know. Um, girlfriends, you know, it's that kind of poem thing and all that. Sure. You don't mind, you know, you, just to show you've got soul, basically, yeah, which you don't, like, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, you <do>. but <laughs> not as much as the poems might yeah, suggest. No, <laughs> near as much as the poems suggest. Like, you know. so they're all songs about kind of girls' eyes and the moon and sort of stars and all that crap, like, you know. But um, so uh, so that kind of thing was, you know, and then it was um, I got to that point where um, I got a bit kind of, um, you know, things weren't going particularly well in my life and I didn't really have the emotional vocabulary to deal with what was going on. Um, this is after school. Yeah, this is like kind of post school. You know, my, my, father, you a- my father was quite old and he, right. then he died and um then um, first girl that I fell in love with kind of um, packed me in and um and that all these despite things, the yeah, poems. yeah, yeah, despite well, maybe because of the poems, <laughs> like, you know, but uh, but yeah, so everything, you know, it's like I just yeah. didn't kind of couldn't really handle all the stuff that was going on, and um, I kind of had a, a couple of good friends who were quite similar minded and all that, and we we got into we got into sort of being drug monsters, basically. You were in London by now. Uh, I was I was or always moving. I was always moving between Edinburgh and London in my, my teens and early twenties. Uh, I, I was lucky that, um, that I had uh, my uncle Alec was a um, train driver and he moved down to London and his family were all Londoners basically he married and had kids down here and uh, so I used to get sent down there for the summer holidays so when I got to that teenage where you want to run away to London I had a kind of um, I had a safe refuge to kind of run to basically uh, What was the difference? I mean the did it feel like a completely different universe? It felt great, you know, but I got kind of, you know, it just felt like um, it felt brimming with possibilities compared, you know, because when you come from a smaller city, you kind of get to, you, you know, you, you feel that you, you know you can you can walk around it, you know, everywhere in the, in the yeah. city pretty quickly. Um, London, I was like, I was living, I was staying out in South Hall. And uh, getting the 207 bus down Oxbridge Road to Shepherd's Bush and then kind of getting on the tube and going on. It was like a, a whole, of, you know, an adventure. You had this massive urban playground. And um, when I got into, you know, you got into going out. And the, the great thing about London is that you could go to, you could get in with some people, you could go to parties and all that. And um, if you made a fool of yourself, you, you didn't have to see them again. You, you could, could close that out. Else. Whereas yeah. in Edinburgh, yeah. you'd be haunting yeah, you for you, the rest of your life. Be, yeah, we'd be following you around a bit. Like, you'd yeah. always be that fella. That, that, that ties in with the train spotting stuff as well, doesn't it? The yes. sense that you can't yeah. escape from this yep. bubble almost. This universe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, you know, you get into that point where sort of, um, I think a lot of uh, young people go through this that. Um, Life gets seems to feel so confining that you just yeah. want to punch holes in it in any way that you can, yeah. And that possibly explains explains the drugs as well. It was, I mean, heroin was your downfall. Is that the right word to use? I wouldn't say yeah. downfall. No. I mean, it's like I think that um, the interesting thing about it is is that uh, you kind of. Um, when you get into heroin, you kind of live in a, a sort of strange parallel universe to the one that you're living in. You know, you kind of. Um, 
you you walk up kind of um, if you're walking up Leith Walk or walking along Uxbridge Road, um, you know it's just people going about their business. It's mm. like kind of builders, school teachers, kind of sort of plumbers, local government officers all going to work. You know, um, but all you see are the junkies and the alcoholics and the okay. people in the shop doorways. It's like you have a, a completely different vision right. of how things are going on. And that starts quite quickly after you start using those. Yeah, really? I mean, I think it's like you know, it's like uh, you know, it's it's like um, once you get into a kind of habit, which is usually after a few weeks, you can get into a habit um, and. Um, then everything starts to gear around that, you know, it's like very, very subtly at first. And, I mean, for the first year, I didn't think it was a problem, you know. I thought that uh, nobody knows what, what I'm kind of doing here, everything's fine. But yeah. I kind of um, I had one kind of strange uh, sort of um, so kind of, like you have these little epiphanies, you know. I had one thing that um, quite early into it, I remember uh, this girl I was going out with, um, I was thinking about, I've not seen her for a couple of days, like, you know. And um, I phoned her up and she said, uh, where have you been? I says, what do you mean? I've just been kind of out seeing some pals and stuff. Mm. It's been three weeks since uh-huh. she called, you know. Yeah. And I thought, my God, you know, it's like you just go off into this parallel place. Um, and it's that thing you think that, you know, you you're, you become a bit more unkempt in your dress and you, you associate with completely different people. You know, your, your old friends and your old things that you do, you don't do them anymore. You know, but you don't see this as being kind of sinister because it happens way. incrementally. Yeah, it happens than, incrementally, yeah. but you're also immersed in the the kind of reality of it. But uh, the first year I was still holding down work. I was still right. doing, you know, what sort it, of stuff were you doing? What sort I was of doing all. I was, I was I was kind of doing local government work. I was right. working in a library at one time. I was kind of do, doing building site work. I was still, you know, which is difficult to do if you've been if you're waking up really. Um, you know, to get out and lift, lifting slabs and putting them down is kind of you know, libraries. However, yeah, you, just... yeah libraries are great. Yeah. <laughs> you become, but you become very good at um, kind of, or you think you become very good at sort of dodging work or yeah. being invisible and not being noticed. But you are, you know, people know what's going Trumping on with you, yeah. um, and uh, you kind of just vanish off the radar, basically. Right. You know, and um, but uh, yeah, I kind of, um, and I got to that point where. It was like uh, there was a friend that, you know, when I noticed that most people that were involved in this kind of thing were, they were there was some kind of thing going on with them. It was either, you know, they were, they were, they were, either, they were self-medicating for some reason. Yeah. And obviously, in some cases, you could tell they'd been victims of some kind of trauma of or course. abuse. They're trying to or, escape. Yeah, or, the, or the, they've had some kind of um, emotional or mental kind of issue that they haven't been, or a mental health issue they haven't kind of um, managed to, to sort of uh, tackle. But there was a small bunch of us, and myself and one pal, it was like a folly ado thing. I don't think either of us would have, would have become junkies if it hadn't been for the other one. Right. And we went into that whole kind of, um, I suppose that kind of twisted, kind of sort of doomy youth rock and roll aesthetic of kind of, um, you know, like Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground sure. and all this kind of stuff. We were immersed in all that kind of stuff. And um, we kind of enjoyed the enigma of it. We enjoyed that, you yeah, know. And it, it was, was romantic. Punk, yeah, there's a, there's a the punk era. The and there yeah. was that kind of, um, there was that kind of sort of um, notoriety. I suppose, and you need or, yeah. you need a partner in crime for that. Yeah, yeah. You otherwise, yeah, it's it not, makes no sense. It, it makes no sense guess, if yeah. you know, if you've not got somebody to bounce it off. Um, to shit, and I suppose that was the kind of, in some ways, that would be the genesis of the rent and the sick boy kind yeah. of relationship. Not the, so much the characters, but definitely that relationship. So, so it's not codependency, quite, is it, or is it? 
I think it probably is in yeah, a way. Yeah, a little bit. I think it is in a way. A yeah. little. And were you writing at this point? I mean, did, were you writing? I when was. You were a, using... One of the things that I could do was to was to kind of write little kind of notes and sketches and sort of. Um, and um, it was only later on actually when I was going across America on a greyhound that I found those. You know, I, you know, I'd, I'd written most of the the. I've written a lot of the stuff then and. Um, it was kind of um, maybe a couple of years after that I found these notebooks, and, I, and uh, it was a kind of shock that some of these sketches were quite funny. A lot of them, they were nonsense, a lot of them. They were very self-aggrandizing, they were putting myself in this kind of position and kind of being this big kind of font of wisdom um, and uh, every, denigrating everybody else. And I thought, this is actually, this is actually kind of, how fiction is written, yeah. basically. You know, you're taking something and you're kind of um, you're putting you're you're, you're putting a narrator in between yourself and the story in a sense, like you know. So it kind of um, it seemed to me that there was a there was a voice that was like mine in these in these kind of little sketches, but right. it wasn't quite mine. You know, it was like a kind of um, it was almost like I created this character. This almost like this. This quite close doppelganger to allow me to tell the story that um, me now being quite a you know quite living a quite respectable life kind of sort of um, you know sort of um, kind of sort of pro- properly and you know going out with somebody engaged to them kind yes. of having a, a career you know now and kind of sort of being kind of you know getting two promotions at work quite rapidly it seemed to be something that I'd left behind, but I could tell that story through this kind of former self or this version of a former self. A bit of the path not taken there as well, then, is it? Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think it's, a, I think it's like kind of... Um, I think it was like... Uh, I mean, I started writing Trainspotting when I was 28, and um, I, was writing a, I was writing it about characters who were 21, 22. Yeah. You know? And to me, it was like, it really, it only struck me later on when I, when I wrote the sequel, Skagboy, the, the, the prequel Skagboys mm. about the, being 50 and writing it about people who were in their, their early 20s, 20, 21. And it seemed to be, the, the gap between being 22 and 28 seemed absolutely massive. It seemed like it seemed like light years, but the gap between being fifty and twenty-one didn't seem anything at all. It was bizarre, you know. It's Why like, do you think that is? I think because when you come out of something, it's it's further oh, away yeah. from you than anywhere. Sure. You know, you just jump out of it and you think it's miles away. It's you know the the old the, the oldest thing is the most recent thing you've yeah. abandoned in a way. Of course, and then when there's more distance, you, you, rec- you recognise more. more of yourself, yes. your younger yes. version, than you would have done if you if you'd literally just cut. Cut ties. So tell me a bit about coming off heroin because you did become addicted. You would, yeah, 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 I was addicted, and it took me a couple of goes to you know to come. What made off you it. realise that you had to sort well, it out? Well, I always thought I would in a way. You did know, you? I mean, I kind of had felt this like a holiday notion from life. The, yeah, yeah, I felt I had this notion in the back of my head that um, this wasn't a place where I was planning to stay forever, um, and uh, it was kind of. Uh, I think the first time I tried to come off it, I wasn't really kind of, um, I wasn't really sort of um, particularly honest about wanting to come off it at the time. And I think what I actually wanted to do was to kind of, was to decrease the amount I was using so that I could actually go back to kind of um, enjoying a kind of, you know, a kind of safer habit, you know. 
Um, is that ever an option? One. Is that ever an option? I don't think it really is. Right. I think there's a sort of there's a, there's an algebra to it yes. that just you know the the you're kind of just ratchet up all the time, and you're always even if you can stabilize it, sure. you're almost vulnerable to some kind of crisis in your life, kind of propelling you into using more basically because it's in your emotional vocabulary by then. Um, yeah, of course. So, uh, so yeah, so I kind of um, when I was when I was actually um, serious about it. Um, the interesting thing about it is, it's like the, the physically, it's horrible coming off it, but it's not you know it's not that bad you know it just you know but within three weeks it's all gone. Any right. physical effects have, have gone, but uh, psychologically, it's a lot more difficult because you've kind of um, you've used this as your way to any any kind of problem, anything that bugs you. You know, you just like you know, I'll just bang up some of this, so you don't have that option anymore. And you have to actually face up to the things that are bothering you and that are annoying you, and you have to start to deal with them. And that becomes quite difficult when you're yeah. used to not, you know, when you're used to having this thing, this kind of, um, a kind of get, almost like a get out of jail free card. Yeah. That you don't have to face anything. It, it surprises me that that you were writing while you were using them, because in many ways I'd have thought that the, they served similar purposes in life. Although I don't think for, I got to the same. I mean, I've always had this. Um, this kind of obsessive compulsive thing going on, I think, and uh, I kind of, um, I think that I was still, I mean, I was, I was tinkering with writing rather yeah. than being really serious about right. it, and I hadn't really let that get to that kind of obsessive compulsive level that I'd let the drugs get to, you know. Yeah. And all I thought, I mean, I got off heroin, all I thought about was other drugs. I thought about yeah. kind of alcohol a lot. I thought about, um, I thought about kind of speed, and then, um, and I, I kind of went very, very straight for a while, and I went, I stopped. I stopped taking drugs for quite a few years, um, and then I got into acetose. I got into ecstasy. But this is after train spotting. Yeah, no, this or is, is this like, just uh, before or about just, the same time. Yeah, right. So you'd be yeah. thirty yeah. in eighty-eight when yeah. it all kicked off yeah. in a big way. Yeah, and that sort of filled lots of gaps in your life. So it replaced it, the heroin. It replaced and it kind of got it replaced the heroin, but also replaced the kind of. Um, the straight professional kind of thing that was kind of beginning to strangle me as well. Was you know, it? Because yeah, you, you'd mean, got, if I've done my research right, you, you, you won some money after a bus crash in Scotland, which let you get on the property ladder in London. So yeah, that's respectability, yeah, professionalism. Yeah. And then by the late 80s, you're back in Edinburgh. Yep. And that's when the acid house thing kicks in. And the, Yeah, and that's like kind of, um, that was a, it was almost like kind of, um, after since it's like the demise of punk and all that, I kind mm. of been looking for something that was, you know, and it was kind of like, uh, and I didn't really recognise it because I hated the music at first. I hated the kind of, you know, I just thought this is you needed music. to be on the yeah. drugs to appreciate the yeah. music, didn't you? And well, that's it. That's what I found out yeah. subsequently. Like I kind of went along to, I remember going along to, um, to Danny Rampling's Shoom Club, like you know, and. Uh, I just didn't get it at all because I was the only person that was straight there. You know, everybody else was on ecstasy, and I thought I was quite puritanical because I you had the heroin experience. Sure. Like, you know, I was thinking that uh, I'm not taking this. I'm not no. taking this nonsense. And then I'd, um, it was a friend of mine. She kind of um, took me out at Christmas, and she said, "We're going to this club, and you're going to take one of these pills." And I went, "Oh." I took, you know, I did, and I just thought, of course, within 10 minutes, I'd invented acetose, basically, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It was all about you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But you were, because I was 16 in 88, and you were 30, and I I was coming out of a 
a northern monastic boarding school and ended up at the Hacienda <laughs> at the age of 16. So it was a bit Brilliant. of a culture. Brilliant. I remember the first time I went to the Hacienda, I was still wearing brogues. Right. I'm wearing brown leather brogues in the middle of the... Right. And it was that astonishing kind of... The last one, really, wasn't mm. it? The last massive... Because you were there for punk. And yep. you mentioned we've talked about how younger people today don't have that gestation period they don't have the notion of a subculture becoming popular culture that's what it is isn't it subculture to popular culture and and acid house and and younger people listening to this or watching this are going to struggle to know what we're talking about because it really did it it, was the last of i mean i think acid house and football casuals but kind of last of that indigenous kind of youth culture um, and I don't think it's like I mean, you've had pockets of it. You've had like grime culture in southeast and yeah. East London, uh, but again, it's not. It's been, you know, it's been out there very quickly, and it's not the chance to sort of um, to have that gestation period and to have that kind of um, to you know to build its own kind of sort of different you know its, its own little culture on the ground. When, when then would you have not been? dismissive of or laughed at the suggestion that you could become a published author when when, when did that was it always there it's hard yeah, for me I mean, to I tell think, i think that i was I, I was determined that i would always do something creative and i kind of thought that um i don't think it's going to be music now and i got more you know and i got <laughs> more into, your yeah, mate. <laughs> yeah and i got more well i got more into the and it was also that thing you know i thought well i mean i'm getting to this age whereby it's almost like writers are kind of get better as you know they get better yeah. as they get older. And I thought this is, um, and also I thought that um, I was going to these acid house clubs and I was really excited. I was like kind of I was getting into the. I thought I want to get that energy in a book. Right. You know, I was yeah. Find find that energy in a book. Get something that does the four four beat and have and has the effects on top. And you, like, you think yeah. in that sophisticated yes. way? Yeah. That, you, but that, I thought that's very remarkable. I thought, this is. I've got to kind of. I've got to find something that. Um, can kind of almost simulate that four four beat, and uh, wow, what I found wow. when I when I wrote Train Spotting at first, I wrote it in a kind of standard English, and I thought, you know, it's a great language, but it's a very kind of you know, it's a controller's imperialistic kind of weights and measures type language. Mm. I wanted something that, and I remember that um, Scotland's got a very oral storytelling tradition, that Celtic kind of uh, storytelling tradition. It's very much about kind of bang bang yeah. rhythm and performance and all that. And I thought, I've got to kind of get all these words in, I've got to get all these street phrases in, I've, I've got to get that timing, that kind of um, that kind of rhythm of it. So when I started to write Train Spotting there, the characters came, kind of came more out of that sort of rhythm and that sense of that 4-4 four, four beat. So you um, went back and started again then? Yeah, I went, I went over it again and started to write, to redraft some chapters and see how that kind of worked out. And it kind of came to life, the book yeah. sort of came to life. And... Um, and then when I got into doing other books like The Acid House and Marabou Stock Nightmares, I tried to keep the same thing going, but I tried to add the effects on, you know, I tried to put all the typographical experiments that would disorientate people and kind of, you know, they'd be banging along to the beat and then they would just see this thing, you know, like words falling off a page or yeah. a tape worm twisting through the book or, you know, so just to try to, or, you know, words kind of falling in steps and different, you know, Yes. typefaces and all that just to kind of <clears throat> shake people up basically you know so they're they're still in that rhythm but they're kind of being shaken that's, up that's absolutely well. fascinating and that's yeah. why you'd never come across as as contrived especially in Marabou Stork Nightmares or when you're at your most I suppose the word we have to use is experimental but that isn't the right word to use is it you're doing it for I hadn't realised there's a plan in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's it's an not idea, subversion yeah. for the sake of subversion. Yeah, no, there's an idea behind it, basically. You know, there's, there's, there's something like, um, you know, I'm kind of, um, 
Uh, I mean, I'm interested in the form of it as well as the content of it. You know, and how much of that is about the reader, and how much is it about writing for you? I think it's all to me. It's it's, a, it's an incredibly selfish thing. Yeah. It's all about writing for myself. It's like I'm, I don't really conceive of any reader. I don't think about any reader. I mean, it's like I know a lot of people who work the other way around. They're re- they right. really have strong engagement with the readers. They know who the readers are. They know the kind of stuff that the readers like. Um, I don't think about that at all in that way. Just, just. It's funny because you know when you move into working in TV and working in film, yeah. you have to because the whole thing is about structure and it's about who, who your audience is and what. Also, what there's loads and loads of other is. people who need to know what to do. Yeah, don't they? it's yeah. a much more collaborative effect. Um, but the great thing about the novel is you just you really do please yourself, basically, James. Yeah. So it came out in '93. Presumably, you'd finished it by the, the sort of end of '91 or, or the beginning of '92. Yeah, I mean, I finished. I actually delivered to the, to, to the publishers in '91. So yeah. you had a deal already. Yeah, I, I, did, I mean, what talk, talk me through that? Because what, well, what I find really interesting about meeting you is this curious, and we've used the word dichotomy quite a lot. But there is this <laughs> sort of someone who had the potential to be a bit of a mess, <laughs> and at the same time, this person who actually has a plan and has some quite carefully thought out um, visions of the future <laughs> yeah well I mean it's like kind of um, I mean it's you know I think sometimes you know you kind of um, you, I think because you feel that everything is a bit chaotic and a bit of a mess in your life right. you do tend to try to strategize your way out of it sometimes yeah. like, you know yeah. um, so again there's you know there's, there, there isn't a sort of um, there isn't a massive contradiction between the two things. No, you're I probably think, right, yeah. except that you you pulled yeah. off the the strategizing. I think a lot of the time yeah, the strategizing I mean, becomes another comfort blanket. Yeah, doesn't it? sometimes it's like it does, and sometimes it's like you know you you in some ways you're probably wise after the event. You know, yeah, you yeah. kind of you can sometimes like um, you can construct a kind of winning strategy in your own head after you've looked through something. Of like, you, you know, yeah, <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, yeah. What um when you finished then transporting when you delivered it to the publisher. Did you have a little feeling inside that this was a bit special? That this was well, I was fortunate in a way that um, there was a lot of uh, great writers in Edinburgh at the time. You know, like Duncan McLean and uh, Alan Warner and Barry Graham, um, Kevin Williamson, uh, Gordon Legg, Laura Hurd. They were all in town at the same time, and Kevin has started publishing, and, and um, I knew Kevin from, from, you know, we had a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances, uh, and the others I kind of got to know, you right. know, and Kevin started the Rebel Inc. and the readings yeah. and stuff, um, and him and I started this Invisible Insurrection Club night, it was like the idea we combine Acid House and literature, basically, um, and uh, yeah, just everything sort of... Um, Kind of t- tended to coalesce, and Duncan had uh, a book published by a, a publisher in London, which was kind of you know second Warburg would become Jonathan Cape basically, um, in Random House, mm. and uh, he had said you know he had published some of my stuff in his Clock Tower Press, and he yeah. said that you should get this down to my editor Robin Robertson. He said, he said, "Do you have any more?" And I says, "Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got enough for a book, basically." And I didn't really; it was just a mess. So I thought that gave me the incentive to, to write this and finish it. So I done it, and I, I finished it, and I sent it off to Robin, and um, who's kind of still my editor right now after all this time, you know. And the um, I kind of went away with my wife on holiday to Spain. And I came back and I heard this, you know, the the voicemail. It was like uh, this posh Scottish voice. And it was like, uh, we're, we're, we love your novel. It's marvellous. We must publish it. 
And I thought it was just one of my mates doing the pub taking the piss, like, you know, because, you know, something that I mentioned that uh, I've written a book. Um, and uh, it kind of, you know, the, the, there was another one, then there was another one. I was like, you've not had any more offers for this, have you? Uh, we, you know, oh, really? Speak to me first. You know, a so, yeah, a bit more panic come, creep, creeping in. And then I saw the, the stack of mail, basically, it was like the letters and all that. So, um, so I kind of, um, you know, I, I met up with him and um, I put the novel in. It was about 91. Yeah. Basically, uh, that, that stuck it in. And I thought, in my kind of naive way, that it would come out the next again week. Basically, sure, yeah, like, you know, it was yeah. two years. Like, grinding almost process, like two, isn't yeah, it? Astonishing. It was like almost two years before it came out. What was that like? Were you writing during that yeah, two years? I got, but you I, were? I got encouraged like, and I finished the acetose very quickly. Because right, yes. you know? that came out very fast yeah, after Yeah, it came about six months yeah. after it, after me kind of kicking up a fuss. I was fuss. waiting for it. I was kicking up a fuss, but I said, got to get this out yeah. quick. You know, it wasted too much time. But it felt so old, the book, to me, when it came out, because, you know, to me it was like, um, it was like an 80s book, you know, even though it became... Very late 80s. Yeah, 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 I see what you mean. It felt like an 80s book, and that felt like a long time ago, and I felt that this is kind of, you know, I've lost the contemporary feel for it, Well, little did you know, because it captured the moment, didn't it? Pretty spectacularly. When did you realise... Because I I, I find it hard in retrospect to separate... I'm 99.9% sure I read it long before the film came. In fact, I must have done if I was waiting for Acid House, because Acid House came out before the film of Transport came out. And then, as a reader, you have that problem of the pictures in your head possibly are preferable to the pictures that Danny Boyle put on the screen, and they get blurred and they get mixed up. But, But you... I mean, it was a big success before it became a film. You, you knew that you. Yeah, well, what happened was when it became a, when it became a play yeah. with the Traverse Theatre and it went around and it came down the bush here. It came went all over Britain. Um, I thought this is this is doing really well. It's going to be you know, and the, the book had really started to sell. I mean, at first it was like to to basically to kind of people in Edinburgh and Glasgow, but also to the kind of London cognoscenti, yeah. you know, all the kind of rock and roll kind of stuff. Well, the club thing as well became yes. a universal yeah. language, isn't yeah. it? So that probably yeah. helped it. Especially, I think, more with Acetose. Yeah, like, yeah. Because of, of the yeah. title of yeah. it, everybody yeah. went a bit nuts for the for yeah. Acetose. <laughs> and then it was, then they got into training, they backtracked into transporting. Right, um, so there was, a, a, there was a real kind of big buzz about the book and about me. And, um, and then it was like, uh, Danny had got in touch about uh, wanting to do the the film basically, and um, there was a lot. Did of you take that in your stride as well? Well, I mean, there's a lot of confusion. I, right. I sold the rights to the wrong people by mistake, basically. You know, I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anything about these things. Yeah. And um, what you know, uh, I remember um, Danny had sent me a copy of Shallow Grave. You know, yeah. And I was living in Amsterdam, and he said. Um, he said, this is a film, Shallow Grave. I'd really love to make a movie of Trainspotting. And uh, so I went, oh, great. You know, so I watched Shallow Grave. And I was getting all these different offers, and it was getting a p- pretty confusing. Sure. Um, and I thought, I liked, you know, I really liked Shallow Grave, and I thought the energy in that film, going with my characters, would be perfect. It would be mm. ideal for it. Um, and then I got talking to this guy who offered me a lot of money, and he said, um, he said if you, you know, I want to produce this, if you thought about uh, directors... I think Danny Boyle would be great. I said, oh, yeah, Danny Boyle would be brilliant. I like Shallow Grave. But I kind of thought that he was Danny's producer. Right. And he wasn't. Andrew McDonald was the was, was producer. And I sold the rights to him, thinking that he kind of came As a mobbed up with Danny. But, yeah. And Danny sent me this sort of fully kind of oh, no. irate, you know, you've betrayed me. <laughs> me and Andrew McDonald and John Hodger are yeah. a trio. Nobody can split us up. And what were you? So... Um, 
I was like, uh, so I kind of um, went, oh, sorry about that mistake, you know. So I got in touch with Andrew, and uh, fortunately, the guy that, that sold the rights to was really good about it, okay. and he, he kind of um, he transferred them over to you know, and uh, we were able to kind of get on to, and the to rest do that history, together. As yeah. it were. There's a line. Um, I know you've answered this question a lot of times. The, the last um, interview, oddly, for this series for Unfiltered was with Mark Hamill, Luke, Luke, Luke Skywalker. Right, yeah, yeah. And he obviously had such immense success with his first real foray that one wonders some people seem to almost feel a bit held hostage to that. You don't seem to me to have ever felt that way. And yet I I do. I'm reminded of that Joseph Heller story when they asked him how he felt about the fact that he'd never written a book that enjoyed the same critical and commercial success as Catch-22 and he replied I think by saying well nor is anyone else I'm not going to (laughs) feel yeah yeah no it's it's like you know I mean um, the thing that I kind of see it you can either see it as an albatross around your neck or as a calling card I mean I think that um, it would have been very hard for a lot of my books to get that level of attention um that uh, they've enjoyed if it hadn't been for For something hitting the commercial base like that and I also think that um you know, I've known a lot of writers who've kind of they've, they've written um, so many good books that have gone unnoticed, and then they've had something that's you know that's hit the critical and commercial base. It's not necessarily been the best work, but it's been the one that's just been off its time and right it's time, right you place. Yeah, it's just yeah, and it's flown. You know, you you have to you have to accept that. And I've, I've not had I've been lucky. You know, I've struggled in other things, kind of. Um, creatively and career-wise and stuff like that. But exactly. I've not struggled at all with writing. I wonder whether that's because partly um, because you are so fluid, because you are so open to new experiences. If you were still sitting in Edinburgh trying to recreate the, the early magic, you could have ended up in all sorts of trouble. But as you... I mean, it sounds odd, but when you mentioned yeah. Pilates, I realised that here's someone who's probably going to go to his grave trying new things. And, and so you don't hopefully, have that desire to, yeah, I mean, to I, revisit and re- resurrect and recreate. You're constantly looking to do new things. Yeah, I'm not trying, you know, it's like kind of um, to try to kind of, um, I mean, I, I, could have just, I could have just written book after book after book about these characters, you know. I could have yeah. had them having a different kind of... Um, like Updike or someone like that? Or, or Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's like, well, you know, it's like Updike, um, if you look at... Um, you know, he lost, he, you know, he's, he's a great stylist and yeah. a great pro stylist. He's, his writing's beautiful. And then when you have something like the the Rabbit trilogy, um, you know, he was writing about something that was important. He was writing about America that was important to him. And you look at his later work that obviously he's not engaged in the same way. And it's just, you know, he's, he's, he's writing great sentences, but essentially yeah. about nothing, yeah. you know. Um, so yeah. I think that's yeah, the I thing. I think you have to, I mean, I, I'm all for kind of... Um, Get a nice literary stylization, but you also have to have stories. You have to have stories to tell. Yeah. And and this is the fourth story, Dead Dead Men's Trousers, featuring train spotting characters. Although the third one was mostly just Begbie. Yeah, I mean it's like kind of you've had. Um, I, th- I think of them as being three really. I think of as being like train spotting porno yeah. and Dead Men's Trousers is like. Um, and I think that you know the Begbie one is the the. The Blade Artist is a spin-off one, and Skag right. Boys is a prequel, basically. Yeah, yeah. so, so the, so the trilogy way, the, the, chronological. Yeah. yeah, I see that chronological trilogy of um, Trainspot and Porno and um, Skag Boys. They, they, all, they almost happened in the kind of real time of the characters' lives. Yeah. Um, but I see it as being a kind of, you know, it's, it's a natural kind of art for me. It's like, because the, the first one's about 
friendship and betrayal, basically. Yes. The second one's about kind of rivalry and revenge, you know. And the third one is like some kind of, um, I suppose, some sort of twisted atonement, some kind of a, a twisted, twisted sort of, um, you know, kind of um, redemption or yeah. kind of resolution. You know, I think that's you know that's quite a nice little. So sort of dramatic art for and, and it does I mean it, in the new book Renton is it, it never really left club culture has he he's, he's, no he's always been on the fringes of it it's always been something that he's interested in doing and he's doing very well Begbie's perhaps most surprisingly become a sort of Damien Hurst type figure yeah I mean I, I felt that if he hadn't the only you know you think when somebody gets to it in the 40s they've had, they've had a jailbird's life and they're, and they're going nowhere and they get one opportunity maybe to reevaluate that. The only things that can kind of redeem them really are kind of art and love, basically. There's not mm. much else that can kind of make you, can shake you out of that kind of zone. Um, and I thought about that for that character. Then I also thought, what if he actually still was a nutter, basically, <laughs> and he just learned to keep his powder dry and he learned to be more strategic and more in control? Um, and I thought, well, with, with Renton, what if he was like... Um, if he was, you know, he's doing this thing, he's enabling the creativity of other people. What if he was frustrated about that and jealous of Begbie and he feels that life's passing him by? He's got, on the on the surface, he's got a glamorous life. But he's almost like the kind of, um, you know, he's almost like he's looking after these other people who kind of probably don't appreciate it that much, as you, as you never, as people never do when you're looking after them in that way. Um, and he's like... Um, He's he's constantly on planes. He's in hotel rooms. He's not kind of he's not been able to sustain relationships because he's constantly been on the move, and it's not really been his choice to that extent. You know, he's 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 not doing it for himself. He's doing it for other people. So that kind of sense of resentment for for somebody who was who was a little bit egotistical and narcissistic anyway would be quite an overwhelming thing. But that, saw, well, that's not you now. Um, well, I mean, not not me, but I'm, I'm, it's almost like two versions of me being jealous yeah. of myself in a way. That, yeah. you know, but um, I thought he would be, if he saw somebody like Begbie, who seemed to just kind of become this thing that he covets, you know, he, he would be very fascinated and mm. repelled and jealous. And, you know, um, and I think that, uh, you know, the it's, it's almost that thing when you see these different characters have got to that time in their life when they, they're they so entwined with each other, but at the same time, they kind of... Um, they, because they know each other so well, they can see what they want and from the other person. They can see what they envy and what they covet in the other person. Do you still have relationships with the people that you were knocking about with when you were first assembling the... the yeah, I mean, I've kind of... My, two of my oldest pals I've known since I was six years old in the scheme, you know, and uh, one of them I, was, I spent kind of New Year with uh, in, in Sligo. Um, and most of my friends, my closest friends, are people that I've known since my teens, basically. What do they make of your success? They're all very pleased for me. I was out with one of them in Manchester the other night. He moved, he moved down there years ago. And um, and obviously, you know, when I was back up at Edinburgh, so I, I kind of, um, you know, they, they seem to be pleased for me. They don't like, you know, they you go into a, you go into the pub and they'll sit there silently and they'll just look at you for about half an hour waiting on you saying something silly. So I always get out of the road quick. I always go like, I'm just going to go to the restroom, guys. Yeah. You know, and they go, what the fuck is the restroom? No, it's like, so it, it breaks the ice. Like, you know, so I'm able to, so I'm able to kind of like, you know, just kind of um, play around with that a little bit and have a bit of a laugh about it. And, and what, what's life like in Miami then? How does, I mean, how do you divide up your time? What do you, what does that? Um, it's much more, it's much more kind of, 
the fitness orientated, you know, I'm still writing, I'm still up early, I'm still writing, but um, I go to the, you know, I'll get up quite early, I'll go to Pilates, I'll go, maybe go to the beach, do a bit of meditation, um, go for a little swim if I feel like it, um, then I'll go down to my boxing club, you know, go back really? home, do so a bit of, yeah. yeah, yeah, quite full on, like, yeah, um, go, and uh, do an hour's boxing, sparring, um, and just, uh, you know, and just then come back, have a bit, a bit of food, sort of uh, take my stuff out to a cafe and look at what I've written in the morning and just, you know, just kind of mix it up that way, you know. And, and, and that's because you have to. The writing is something that is... Yeah, the writing is something that's always... Sane. Yeah, it's, it gives me... It, it's, thought, it's something that really roots me wherever I am, you know. I can kind of... Um, it's you, you kind of get to the point where you think, well... This is a you know this is something that you do. This is your job, really. You know you have to you, know, you have to put the hours and you, know, yeah. you want to get better at it. You want to improve at it. You want to come up with, with better ideas with interesting characters, and uh, you have to spend time at it. And what's next? Or do you never know? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing one. I'm doing a kind of um, a novel right now. I'm, I've just done the first draft of it, which is uh, starts off with the the shooting in Vegas. At, um, okay, crikey! The, so this is box fresh. Yeah, though, yeah. It? It, it's it's, it's, it's the shooting in Vegas at uh, the Harvest Festival, um, and uh, it ends up. It's like the people, the people, fictitious characters that were involved in this. Right. Uh, they move on to a couple of years later, and it ends. It's bookended with another shooting, like a fictitious one, um, and uh, it's just about. Uh, the kind of reactions and responses to, to that thing. Obviously, I was going to say it's topical now, but it's always topical in America. You know, yes. I mean, it's like um, the the Florida thing. I think has been interesting because you've had this massive mobilisation of youth, basically, mm. um, and that's you know, it's like kind of um, pretty kind of unprecedented the numbers. That yes. kind of, that it does are, feel different you know, from everything that's yeah, gone before. Yeah, it's like it? it's a sl- you know whether it's just that. A kind of slight kind of ratchet up, and sure. uh, or whether it's a, a sea change, a you don't really know change, yet. But no. it's some, it's it's, it's indicate it's indicative of something anyway. We um, yeah. we have to I guess wait and see. Um, we're pretty much done. But before we wrap up, I, I have to just point out your. Is it, is it, I don't know if obsession's quite the right word. The 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 regard in which you hold Andy Murray. Right, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This is uncommonly high because, again, if yeah, you know, yeah. people have an image of you as as being kind of maybe a bit gruff or about the childlike enthusiasm that you display yeah, yeah. whenever yeah. Andy Murray's on the court, that's magic. Yeah, I mean, um, it's so. I mean, I can't believe that um, because it's almost like um, it's not just the, you know the the best. You know, the, you know the best tennis player that Scotland's ever had. He's practically the only person in Scotland that's ever played tennis. Basically, <laughs> ever had a tennis racket in their hand. You know, and it's amazing that he's just kind of you know such a great champion, such a great kind of um, so good at it. Basically, you know, when you think about. Um, in Scotland, everybody plays football. Everybody kicks a ball around from an early age, and we're so terrible at football. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's true, uh, isn't it? <laughs> but but, but you know, we've got the only guy that's ever picked up a racket in Scotland, and he's brilliant. Uh, uh, so it, I find that amazing. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's lovely yeah. to watch you on Twitter. I, I can't read out half of these; they're not suitable for a family audience, are they? But the um, have you met him? Is that is that is yeah? It, is it I've, got, I've actually got quite friendly with his mum, Judy. Yeah. She's, she's a, amazing. She's, isn't she's she? a great, absolutely woman. She's amazing, a wonderful person. Like yeah. And um, great fun, and um, yeah, I mean, he's and he's a he's a very nice guy, very dry, witty, very kind of um, very droll, very kind of uh, very cool and clever. Like yeah. Scotland's two most famous sons, 
at the moment. Well, I don't well, know. About, yeah. It's been a pleasure, haven't I? Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, James. It was great. Pleasure, mate. Cheers. Cheers. What a fascinating man. He's, he's 58, 72. He's 14 years older than me, and yet he made me feel a little bit lazy, actually, as if I've almost settled down in life, whereas he is off discovering and doing new things all the time, which is why his fiction remains so vibrant and so fresh. Go and buy Dead Men's Trousers. It is an absolute classic. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Unfiltered and leave a five-star review wherever it is that you access your podcasts. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.